All right, so you've spent your time in school really refining your technical skills and knowledge, but you understand that clinical practice is messy. You realize that strong interpersonal connections, communication skills, and the ability to think critically are crucial for success in clinical practice. If only there was a clinical mentorship process aimed exactly at that. Oh, wait, there is. Enter the Level Up Initiative, your solution for quality mentorship for students and new grads targeted at helping to cultivate top-notch critical skills and communication skills. Oh, and did we mention it's free? Yep, you heard that right. If you want to develop these critical skills and connect with a badass network of forward-thinking providers, then the Level Up Initiative is for you. Their next enrollment process opens June 15th for an August 1st start date. Head on over to www.thelevelupinitiative.com and learn more about what they do and see why over 1,000 students and new grads have trusted Level Up Initiative in helping them grow. Feel free to reach out to us directly with any questions. See you in June. It's kind of one of those things, it's like the duck. You know, you see a duck in the water, right? The duck looks like it's cool, but the duck's freaking working hard under the water. Wow, I'm working hard, working hard. That's how our place is. We look cool, but we're working hard. Um, yeah, man, it's, it's been interesting because uh, we're with the startup now, and it's it's been a shift to just totally online and trying to, trying to be like, all right, now we need to push telehealth and we need to build a remote programming component to this stuff to service people and um, yeah. and just try to build an online audience um, in Texas um, to promote the opening. Has it been interesting to see like telehealth is now the trendy thing? Like, Dude, it's crazy. It uh, is crazy. It's funny how like in the beginning, you know, Instagram PT, sorry about the dog. Instagram PT was kind of like the uh, the fancy thing and now like where telehealth is now like the new, you know, cats chasing lasers on the internet. Like it's, yep. that's what it is. Yep. Everybody's offering their free, their free kind of to free telehealth. I think you're fine with. I'm yeah. all for like <laughs> taking some, taking a few courses for, you know, saving a few bucks, but. I think it just exposes a lot of the things that have been talked about for a long time in terms of like getting good at talking to people yeah. and how much that seems to be like as much as we like to throw out the whole words matter, there still just isn't a lot of honest conversations going on. And it's hilarious because if you look in the training world, there's this big movement towards like a constraints based approach. I talk about throwing some constraints on a rehab. You put somebody behind a computer, you got to sit there and mm. talk to them for a while. You're going to start figuring out what you need to say really fast. Really fast. Yeah. This is a perfect training scenario. Maybe, maybe well, this will elevate the physical therapy profession, right? That's yeah. I mean, imagine how much better, imagine how much better subjective exams would be if, because you know, when you take your practices in school, it's all about like, did you do the special test right? Did you get your thumb in the bicipital groove? It's like, if you made them do it via computer to where the student is sitting there having a conversation on the other side, yeah. it just, it'd be really entertaining to watch how fast, like, because I think we do have this predisposition to want to put our hands on everything. Yeah. And it really is that conversation seems to be one of like the big important drivers out of all of this. And I think we're too quick to skip that conversation. A lot of times to go straight to the, let's start poking around and see what's going on. 
I mean, have you, I don't know if you guys have seen it as much recently, but like, I still have a few providers that like, will put a script for like eval and treat and they'll even put just like the wrong body part. Like they said it was like right knee pain. The person, as soon as you bring them in, like they're limping on their left leg. I'm like, so what's going on with the left knee? He's like, I don't know what the doctor said, but my left knee has been more of a problem. And I'm like, let's just start there. Like what's going on? And you get at least to know what your framework is to start. And sometimes it may not even need a whole lot of like change and hands-on stuff. It may just be like some reassurance. Let's see, you know, what pattern happened before and what we can adjust to at least get started. Or even just hearing it's going to be okay. That's who. I mean, yeah, I think that's part of it a lot of times is it would be interesting if you could conduct like an exit exam after a, uh, a visit with a healthcare provider, especially like MSK stuff. And, you know, do you feel better or worse or the same about your condition after leaving and see how many of them, like see where that felt? Yeah. Especially if you like, you were to compare, let's say, uh, you know, initial exam where there was like, you know, treatment that was involved towards the end of it, or just people kind of going through like a really thorough subjective um, and explaining kind of what the outline of the process should be, like what their expectations really were. If you saw a big difference there, I'd be curious to see that. We actually had a conversation regarding telehealth uh, that was essentially boiled down to what can you do, wh what can't you do in clinic that you could do in telehealth? And, you know, people were talking about first, like manual muscle tests. And you're like, well, if you're doing manual muscle tests, you're not going to pick up much in range of motion. Well, your margin of error is five degrees. And then somebody was like, well, what about muscle tones? Jesus Christ, give me one good objective assessment for muscle tone that you can even do hands on. And then, well, what about compensatory movement patterns? What about them? <laughs> if I'm treating someone who's four weeks status post an ACL, like I would probably be really freaked out if they did have a perfect squat. Yeah. Like, a little bit of knowing the timeline <laughs> and the progression going through it. And you know, it's, there really isn't much in, it really is that like taking the emphasis off of ourselves as therapists, because, uh, you know, after this meeting, I was sitting around talking with some of my staff and it was like, they don't necessarily need me. They need my equipment because right yeah. now people don't have access to squat racks and things like that. And that, that is by no means a justification for bringing everyone in, in the current situation. Right. But it's, it's, it's not about me it's much more about like, do you have access to the tools that you need to do to build yourself into a better athlete? Like it's all, not, it's not me doing things to you. It's you doing things to you. Sure. And then maybe just the reassurance and the guidance along the way too. Like there may be some, you know, exercise progressions that they may not have been exposed to that, you know, they're coming to you to at least kind of know where to, they can head in that direction or what could help the process too. But it doesn't have to be everything just like hands on. This has to be done this specific way. I'm like, there's, there your your knowledge base can also be really helpful as well too. Well, I think sometimes we forget that we all see different populations too, because even what I see or saw at Florida versus what I see at Stanford Children's, you know, it is Gen Pop versus Pete Sports, but it still just as a whole, the populations, the culture, everything going into it is, is highly different. And I think a lot of times we see the internet battles that devolve into like, I do it this way. Yeah. We forget that we see different populations. Yeah. Like there's a good chance if you're running a cash-based practice that 
you're not seeing the super medically complex, low SES, you know, 17 things going on patient. And that is going to influence how you're going to address the situation. And, you know, I think we forget that a lot of times. Like I used to joke years ago with another person on the internet that I, I wanted a holiday where we changed social media. So like Jared, you would see my Instagram and I would see yours just so we yeah. could see like what really is coming into play out yeah. of it. But how crazy would it be if you could be like, yeah, let's go on sabbatical. You come treat my case low for three weeks and I come treat yours. Like yeah. how many texts do you think that would go back and forth that are just like, holy shit. Yeah. Like <laughs> what's going on here? How do you talk to and, these people? Yeah. And, but like you, you talk to them because you're part of the community too. Yeah. Like, when I first got out here, like I, I wasn't really entrenched in a lot of what was going on, but after being out here for two and a half, three years, like I feel like I have a, a pretty good grasp on a lot of like the, the cultural norms as it were. And, the, and you know, even working in peace uh, as a 38 year old male who has a rudimentary understanding of electronics, um, I have never been on TikTok, but I certainly know what it is, and the dances are as a result <laughs> of the current patients that I treat. So, or how terrible the music is for some of these dances too. Well, we'll get into that. You just hold on, Josh. We'll get. It's yeah, coming. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You, he teed one up for me. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think I think Trace can speak a lot about those differences too, because he's at the VA there in Temple, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's our population. It is actually better, I think, for me. I'd rather sort of force them out of the mindset of they're coming in to get something done to them. It's like, if you are coming in to a virtual appointment, you know, it's going to be a lot of talking and kind of education. It's not going to be hands-on because the VA for a while has been that hands-on modality driven kind of PT. And now you're seeing clinicians that are having issues switching to tell because it's like, how are we going to do physical therapy over the internet? It's like, well, there's lots of ways you should look into some of them because it's being done and being done at a high level. So it, I think it's going to be a real quick elevation of our profession. Like you guys were saying in the subjective portion and how important that is. So, you know, I bet when we first started talking about doing round two of this, none of us thought it was going to turn into a telehealth podcast. <laughs> yeah, <that's>, nope. <laughs> it's so, it's so hot right now, Derek. Yeah. All but, the new hotness. <laughs> yeah. Are you doing telehealth with peds? I feel like that would be just a whole nother level of, something i can't imagine he only treats um, through tiktok yeah, yeah. <laughs> loads up his whole, videos see you guys use like hep to go and uh Edbridge. i use tiktok and my hep <laughs> is nothing but uh flossing and whatever yes. other dances there are or um, a little bit older and like in high school you use snapchat instead no, God. <laughs> uh, i mean so it, you can do it on peds and actually like it it is kind of contingent upon the age side of it. And I think we tend to group peds like in our mind, even in school, because how we were taught was all the developmental stages. And if you look at it, kind of how the education side of it goes, once you're starting to get into like the middle school age, peds, like peds from how it's taught in class starts kind of dropping off. And whereas like it just kind of gets grouped into the adult side of things. And I think we forget that there's a huge, levels through like 10 to 8 like you know you'll occasionally have a 10 year old come in that like i mean they're they're there that, that frontal lobe is coming in i mean they can have a good conversation 
And then, you know, you'll have a 16 year old come in that if you set a butterfly loose clinic, you're not going to be able to get anything done that day. And it, and it is that variation and being able to cater accordingly to it. And I certainly think some of those tend to lend themselves much more towards um, like telehealth type visits. But, you know, for my post-ops right now, especially like I'm not as concerned with the, like where our true strength progressions are because a lot of them don't have access to it. But I certainly need to check in and have a conversation are you doing your basic range of motion? Are we at a point where we can start working on some basic conditioning? Once we come back in, then we can start talking about like where we are for limb symmetry indexes and, you know, getting some like quantitative measures out of it. Yeah. And also like I'll add on to the post-op cases too. Like you brought up earlier, like mentally check in with them too. I have a super fear avoidant ACL reconstruction that's on my caseload right now. And like every day, the first 15 minutes are like, hey, something's new, is this wrong? What am I feeling, what is this? And like, it's just kind of bringing them back down to earth to realize that like, these are the things we somewhat expect. This is probably where the progression should go, or at least we hope it will go. But right now we're just gonna, you know, hold pat to what we know, keep progressing, because there are still good things happening. And it'll set things up for whatever the next phase will look like. So that can definitely be a super important part of telehealth as well. Trace, do you feel like, you know, I know it's only been a week or so, but do you feel like you've seen uh, some changes already kind of happening in the the approach in the VA side of it? So I'm in our uh, CLC, which is like a sniff setting right now. So I've been dealing more of like the, how do we keep this out of here side? And then uh, trying to help the clinicians, because I've done like a couple of visits via telehealth, but more, you know, I'm 30 years younger than some of my like coworkers. So just technology is a little easier. So I've been trying to help them get ready to switch over to it and make sure that their mics are turned on and their cameras aren't covered. And, you know, we have the right platform downloaded and all of that. Um, so just trying to troubleshoot that because they're looking to launch everything telehealth by next week and then maybe going to like teleworking from home because they're still having everybody come to the hospital to telework for the VA because they don't have the platform ready to manage all of the um, like telecommuting yet they don't have the servers ready or something is what they're telling us but it's a lot of you're seeing how large the va system is but also how individualized each hospital is too of like here's how we're doing it here's how we're doing it here's how we're doing it but not everyone is on the same page yet it's kind of every it depends on where you're at um so when you guys were in school and I have a feeling the answer is going to be a little skewed just because I've known you guys for a while and I think you tried to like get outside the box early, but was the initial impression that healthcare is done the same everywhere? Or I guess within the United States, let's make that constraint there. In regards to um, like the whole complex, the whole industry. Yeah. 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 It felt that way. It felt like shit. Like, it's all shit. It all sucks. Because <laughs> I think what's interesting, and and I've seen more schools kind of get into this from the physical therapy side of things, is like giving that assignment of going and looking up an ACL protocol or a bank card protocol for like six different hospital systems, just so you can see the heterogeneity out of it. And I think it is an important thing to realize that like we're all not doing this the same way. And I highly doubt you're going to run into a clinician who's going to say like, I'm not giving quality care. I'm not using evidence, but you know, if there is that degree of heterogeneity out of everything, like 
somebody's got to be wrong. Yeah. And <laughs> that was we, in, uh, in our third year, we actually had a class that was taught by a professor that I, it was like a spine specific class. And this professor was like, Fayomp trained, but he also had his doctorate in neuroscience and he was a McKinsey cert going towards his dip. And he showed us like, here are four different ways you could treat this patient and they're all going to get outcomes, whether or not they're similar outcomes and kind of showing, you know, in school through your ortho classes, you're taught, here's how you would teach this. You're going to do A, B, and C because that's what's on the exam. But getting that exposure in third year of like this one clinician, he's like, I could treat this four different ways depending on how this patient comes in and expects to be treated. It was really good to kind of see that, I think, at the very end of our curriculum of like, look, guys, this is a practice. Get the skills that you can and treat the patient in front of you. Um, I don't know. It was interesting, I think, to see that point of view right towards graduation. Well, I think it's a good one to have because I, I think uh, the initial inclination a lot of time is like, well, I have to graduate. I have to differentiate myself. I, I have to check all these boxes. And the predisposition is to like find one school of thought and go way down that road and get all seven certifications. Whereas likely, especially as a new grad, the better approach is like, if you are going to go the certification route, which I certainly is not my cup of tea, but do like seven different ones. Mm. Just because I, I think seeing like, we're all kind of saying the same thing, but like there's, there is some nuance to it. And it's even interesting, you know, if you look at, there was a paper a few years ago that I love going back to that talked about like the evolution of low back treatment. And it essentially was like our narrative was related to what imaging technique we had access to. So when x-rays were around, everything was set. When MRIs, it was disc. Then we started getting PET scans and fMRI and everything, of course, was neurological. And, you know, all of those have a poor correlation, but we all, we all have this disposition to see what's wrong. But like, if I think it would be fun to take like seven or eight schools of thought and make a table out of it. And here, like the table would include their problem set, what they would do about it and what their expected solution was. And just to see how like, probably in the problem that you're going to have like a kappa of like 0.2 where no one agrees on anything. The solution is probably going to rise to like 0.6 and then like expectation, you're probably 0.1 because or, or 1.0 because everyone thinks it's going to work. And like, if you look at it, like that last part, it looks like in the literature, we have like a 60 to 70% success rate. So anyone who's ranking higher than that obviously has some kind of, hindsight bias and recall bias we probably need to have a conversation about. Do you think, do you think physical therapy could, is it growing to be a more standardized? No, is I that, don't think so at all. Is that ever an achievable goal or should we just be, are we just going to have to deal with um, my personal who, soapbox on this and like fully conceding it is my personal soapbox. Um, until we start or until we stop opening 30 new PT schools a year, you're never going to fix this. Yeah. And like, yeah. we've basically saturated our own market and turned the schooling itself into its own monetization procedure. And if you keep doing that, like, you know, I, I'm not necessarily saying that one school has it right. And I certainly don't think that, but 
you know, if you have 25 opinions, it's a little bit easier to sort through than I think 245 or something like that is what we currently have for PT schools. Damn. So, and, you know, I think even out of that, if you look at it, even if you go to like CSM, um, you're going to see high representations out of a lot of schools. In some schools, I would be interested to even know if they know it's a thing. And that intermingling of CSM, I, I think, tends to kind of level the playing field a little bit just because you get to see there are different opinions on there. But if you go through your entire educational process and you're in rural Georgia and you haven't done anything except for go to SNFs or in acute care facilities in that area, you yeah. likely have no idea what's going on in, you know, Sunnyvale, California or Gainesville or Austin or, you know, different places along the way. And if you think about it, like what's your incentive to change if you don't know that someone else is doing it differently? Like I have a couple of clinicians that I have a lot of conversations with about uh, ACL reconstructions and we all do things a little bit differently. And like myself and John Hodges, one of the physical therapists who runs uh, Nevada, you're welcome Hodges, I said it right, uh, Nevada Physical Therapy, um, we always have conversations. It's like, well, when would you be okay starting an active hamstring curl? Or, you know, when would you be okay starting this side of things? And it's rarely like a time contingent thing. It's much more like a criteria base within the constraints of ACL healing. But more the point is, is like, yeah, dude, I think you're smart and you do it different than me. And if you're doing it different than me, like is, is one of us right or wrong, or are we kind of on the same area of gray? And like, until we really started digging into that, if, if you would ask me, I, I would have said like, I think we have a pretty good handle or I think I have a pretty good handle on this. But then you start seeing like the uh, tool paper from I think last year or the year before last, that showed something like 13% of ACLs are meeting the return to support criteria at nine months. Like you're like, well, it turns out we're just really, really bad <laughs> at this along the way. But how important do you feel? Sorry. Will you? Oh, no, go ahead. Okay. How important do you feel like as either a student or a new grad it is to get that CSM experience or some sort of conference or, you know, mingle between school experience because i feel like it could go either way potentially yeah well i think but step one like what's the whole adage it's like step one is admitting there's a problem so you, you have to figure out there is something that needs addressed now whether you're going to address it or whether you're going to have a backfire effect or whether you may go completely the wrong way with it like you still have to go to that turning point and I don't know what well, I would highly advocate for students to hit up CSM or like a student conclave or next or something while they're in school, um, especially if it's in close proximity to you. But I think in today's social media world, it's, I don't know that I would say it's not as imperative, but I would say like it's easier to reach out to clinicians. The other and, challenge is really not getting too locked into like tunnel vision of people who have the same or similar thought processes as you, which I, I see a lot more of like the social media space right now is like there may be 10 to 20 clinicians that like I look 
look up to or like I'm kind of reading from some of their blog posts or like some of the articles they're processing and stuff. And they seem to kind of, you know, uh, align with my cognitive biases as well. So it's very easy to kind of stay down the same rabbit hole rather than get exposed to a lot of like conflicting thoughts or places, spaces that kind of open up more reflection to, to kind of realize like this is another approach that seems viable or like I have questions about this approach without it seeing like a personal attack too. Like, unfortunately, too many people are going to take like their, uh, you know, somebody coming at them with questions more in a personal stance rather than just like a, a question for understanding. Well, and I think if you're going to have a doctoral level degree, you better be comfortable getting <sighs> questioned on things. Hmm. Um, and that's just kind of how it goes it, as far as my opinion goes on that. Like, and especially there, there's this dichotomy of like, I want to build my brand, but I don't want anyone attacking my brand. Yeah. And like, yeah. if you don't want to have your brand questioned, then you probably have a shitty brand. Yeah. And that's just kind of how it is. But we kind of see these silos come out of it to where like, and I think as students to kind of the point that Trace asked a moment ago, like probably the first people you're going to encounter when you start getting into the social media side of things are the self promoters. And like, it's the people who, and I'm not saying this is bad, but it's the people who've likely like paid for some ads they have more followers because they figured out that the algorithm says we need to put out more content. And like, you know, if you put out a crappy post once a day for a hundred days and somebody else puts out three posts every or a post every 30 days and there's this high quality, you're going to see the person who's posting every day. But like to go back to like the common theme that like we've always had since I've met you guys and our music analogies, like, most of the stuff on the radio is awful. Yeah. And like, if you want to find good music, you have to go looking for it. Like it's not going to come to you. No. And it's the same thing with physical therapy or, or basically like any walk of life. Damn. Like, you know, if you go on Yelp and you go to like the top five reviewed places, like they're probably going to be pretty decent, but you're probably also going to have a line because everybody else is using Yelp. Whereas like you might be better off if you got a neighbor who's lived in the area for 15 years being like, yo dude, I want some pho. Where do I need to go? You know, a certain type of person that's going to respond to a Yelp review or like put up a Yelp review. We all know those people who go like to a restaurant just to like look for negative things to put a Yelp review out just to kind of promote themselves. Like we know people who've been that person. Well, and like Tim Shea, like my mentor, Josh knows Tim, like one of the greatest clinicians ever, like his whole shtick when we were going through like my initial learning was like, dude, I have made so many mistakes and my job through this entire thing is to at least cut your number by a third of the ones that I made. And you still need to make some of them because they're just integral parts of the learning process. But, you know, if you go down the exact same path that I did, you're going to end up in the same spot. So you're going to be however many years behind what's actually going on. Like, I, I'm here to shorten the curve for you. And, like, that should be a lot of the job out of this. And, like, it, it does involve getting to the point of questioning yourself as a clinician. It, it does involve some, like, reading on your own. Like, yeah. other 
soapboxes since we seem to be on these today. Like, I, I think, I think there is this predisposition that you're going to come out of school. Um, there's going to be a 40 hour job waiting for you. You can do all these certs. You're going to get uh, $2,500 a year for con ed and an 8% match on your 401k and see six patients a day, one-on-one. Yeah. And you're like, dude, write that out as a math problem. That's never going to happen. In like, you don't get a participation trophy just for showing up. Like, it's one thing to have the desire to aspire to a lot of great things, but you got to put in the effort and the time. Like, you've got to put in the work. Um, it, it's the same thing in training. You can see all the uh, you know Instagram videos, like all things gym and CrossFit and whatever the case may be. But unless you're putting in the time in the gym, you know, to actually put yourself to be in a place to be successful, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I, I told uh, – actually, this was yesterday. I told Austin Baraki and Michael Ray that I want a barbell medicine shirt that is Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill and just says always training. And, like, you're never going to get anywhere out of it. But, you know, over time you start enjoying pushing the rock. Yeah. And, like, it, it's just – I'm the more I read, the more I realize that I know less and less. It, but it is sitting there and putting in the work and having that expectation that everything's just going to be there. Like I, I like watching the videos of like the really high quality chefs too. And it's something that shows up in almost every Michelin starred chef. Like if you just watch a video of them talking about their process somewhere, they're going to mention working a 12 to 16 hour day. Yep. It's like you didn't stumble into being the best chef in the world. You worked your ass off for it. Like you're not going to stumble into being a phenomenal PT and even some of the people that like I fundamentally disagree with their overall approach to physical therapy. I do have some respect for their hustle because they're going to get after it. Sorry. I don't know what my dog is doing right now. <laughs> no worries. That's it's, we joked that on the barbell medicine podcast, Chimera is our fourth host. So she's just chilling out today for some reason. Mine was trying to, but then she randomly wakes up from a nap and Lord knows what she's thinking about. How, how much can, is there ever a point where hustle can outweigh, I don't want to say knowledge, but if you just, if you just keep taking shots, like, Hey, I go to the gym. I take as many shots as Kobe. Some of them are going to stick, right? Yeah. And you're probably going to be like, even if I went out and took as many shots as Kobe, I'm still going to probably be a mediocre basketball player, but like, you know, odds are mediocre. I think a lot of times too, mediocre comes with a frame and like, you know, I consider myself a mediocre power lifter at best, but in the grand scheme of humanity, I'm in like the 97th percentile. Yeah. It's just like, I know the entire 3% in like, half of them warm up with my max. And, and it's just realizing that once you start getting closer and closer to the top, the, the return on that becomes a lot harder. Like I used to joke all the time that the last person I want to fight behind Mike Tyson is Mike Tyson's sparring partner. Like, I mean, dude, it never gets any credit whatsoever and steps in the ring with Tyson every day. Like that's a bad dude. Yikes. So and, you know, it's, it is, but sometimes I think physical therapy to that analogy, the, the orthopedic surgeon ends up kind of being Tyson that gets a lot of the cred 
and we end up trying to be kind of the, the sparring partner. So we're the one there trying to make sure everything's going right the entire time. But, you know, it's, it's not as high of a prestige position. And I, and I think you have to be okay with that. Like, you're not going to get famous as a PT, or the likelihood of it's pretty low. Unless you know the algorithm pretty well. Yeah. Well, but like, even then, if you look at it, like, so we're between a rock and a hard place because the fitness community is probably at least 10 times what the physical therapy community is probably closer to a hundred times. So if you're looking at the piece of pie there, a really good strength coach is going to have a lot more reach because mm-hmm. basically it's like all of the unhurt athletes. And then we're taking a slice of the pie of the athletes who've had an injury. Yeah. And then you're like, well, I'm going to take all of the injured athletes, but I'm only going to work with left-handed pitchers, but I want to be famous for doing that. And by then, like you've, you've given yourself such a small slice of the pie that like you may be really well known within the left-handed pitching community, but like no one else cares. And, and it is kind of that like hedgehog and fox specificity versus generalist approach to things. And like, I, I think you are much better off with a generalist approach of like, I, w- I would rather know a little bit about a lot of things than a lot about one thing, just because that more breadth ends up being able to give you perspective. Yeah. I was having a conversation with, uh, with my weightlifting coach the other night about like relevance in the coaching sphere too. Like it seems like the loudest dog is the one that gets the most attention, even though they may or may not be like the best one out there or like one of the ones that has the most respect. It's like we're seeing a lot in the Olympic weightlifting world that like there's probably about five or six coaches that have international caliber athletes regularly or access to them that are taking them to, you know, high, you know, Olympic qualifying meets and things like that. But they're usually not the ones posting the most on, you know, social media. Like they're too busy getting their athletes prepared and keeping them at the highest level. So like, is it really about your exposure or your brand strength or is it really about like doing the work? what's the most important thing? What's your value and your metric? I mean, that's, that's a perfect example out of it. And I think if, if you're really, if you're sitting there posting for eight hours a day, like what do you read? Like, when do you have time to sit there and read anything? Yeah. Like, in like, you know, it, I probably, I don't want to know how much like time a day I spend reading, but it's not like a chore. It's like, well, I need to go, it's like a lifelong game of Clue where I'm never going to find out who killed the dude. It's just I get a lot better layout of the house. Pushing that rock, man. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really what it is. And, like, I think there has to be that concession that you're never going to get there. Like, I think uh, also for the new grad, too, you have to remind them that they just need a freaking start. I think sometimes the the overwhelming wealth of papers out there or the people who are kind of making research more um, approachable seems to be really, really daunting. But I think it's better to just pick a place to start or maybe a handful of papers and keep kind of pursuing certain things rather than just saying like, well, fuck, I've got way too much out there. Like, I'm never going to know why I even put in the effort. Well, but you look at that, like, that's like the perfect analogy to a lot of physical therapy. It's like, where are we looking at with a lot of our patients? It's like, where do we need to start? You got to start somewhere. We've got to literally get you moving in some capacity and, and taking that first step. Like that's the whole Eastern philosophy journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. 
Like it's, you got to go somewhere. And sometimes, or a lot of times our job is just to like nudge them in that direction. And I would say like the older I get in the profession, a lot of my job is to try and like nudge the new grads to have some curiosity towards the topic or to question something. And like, you're never going to be able to like push somebody, but you're, it's more of like the guiding principles of what's going on. So Jared, for you and yeah. Trace, since you guys have been out, what do you, what's been the biggest surprise? Biggest surprise. This will be interesting too, because I know Trace has been at the VA, um, like his whole career so far. I've, I've, I've bounced around a lot um, within my like one and a half year. Um, biggest surprise is that for me, and I, they tell you this in school, but even like right out the gate, how much uh, society views you as an expert or maybe it's not society in general, but the person in front of you and how much power you do have to shape their, um, their opinion of themselves and their body and their healing. And just like our, just some random tangent, like when you're doing a subjective eval and then you make an offhanded comment and then you just see that person and how they look at you and how they like, Oh, I never thought about that. Oh, I guess I am strong. Or, or hopefully not in a negative way when somebody understand or you implant a nocebo and then they're like, Oh, so you mean my glutes are weak, right? And I got to get them stronger and that'll fix everything. So it's, it's, that's been a big shock of just realizing how, how uh, potential, uh, how, how careful you have to potentially be um, when somebody does view you as this expert um, that can help them with pain and, and, and function and fitness. Yeah. I think the biggest surprise for me was like, I always knew the subjective and talking to people was a big part of it, but I think my ability, like I don't find myself to be very, like, like I passed PT school. Yes. I'm decent at, school and academics and things like that but I always felt like I could relate to the person a little bit better and how big of a role that communication of like taking this concept that we learned in school and explaining it in a level that someone who doesn't have any medical background can understand and how little that happens in the medical community like you'll have someone that sits there and talks biomechanical stuff or the biomedical model of why they're hurting and this person has no idea what's going on. They're spending five, 10 minutes with a provider that's just like throwing things over their head and they never have any idea what's going on. And then you explain it of like, hey, you know how you're a mechanic and when it's cold out, your car doesn't run until you kind of get stuff flowing through the system. We need your body to start getting stuff flowing through the system because you haven't moved it in forever. Like being able to either use analogies or something that they've done in their life, like how big of a role that changes. And just like when you get that switch, it's not necessarily like I got to get everyone under a squat rack or I got to do this. It's like how big of a role education can play. I don't know if it's just specifically in the population that I'm working with where they go through the system of like, here's how you're broken. Let's relate it back to your time in the service. And this is where we're at. Sorry, we can't fix it. Like, I don't know if it's just in the system that I'm in or if that's across the board, but I guess across seeing, the board, man, for sure. Yeah. Seeing the role that, you know, education plays and in physical therapy specifically how little I put my hands on people when all I learned in schools was special tests and how to get muscles to activate and palpate and do all these things. It's like, I would say I put my hands on less than 25% of my patients. 
And that's probably 75% of our ortho curriculum was things we could do, whether through modalities or um, being able to palpate structures and things like that, being able to tell the difference between like, you know, a muscle versus bone versus tendon. And we'd spend three weeks on that and never spent a day on telehealth and talking to people because it wasn't on the test. Yeah, I, I think you you make phenomenal points on all fronts there. Like it's a lot of the things that we are taught to think matter when you get out in the real world don't necessarily. And I think if we continue to overweight those, we're doing a disservice to our patients. And I, I think especially like the more I've been in pediatrics, you're getting a little bit more of a blank slate just because you haven't had the same exposure to all the narratives you, you haven't been on with somebody trying to sell you 17 functional hypertrophy programs. So it's a little bit easier to like start from square one and go from there and be like, well, in, it's funny because I've definitely found myself gravitating so much more to like school analogies over the last few years. Like, the sports specificity is a really easy one because it's like, well, if, if you just went to school and took math the entire time, you probably wouldn't be a very good student. You might have a good understanding of math, but, you know, probably should be taking some grammar, some science, some other things along the way. And, and that tends to hold true for a lot of them. And then, like, when you're starting to talk about the loading side of things, I'm like, well, you know, if you failed a test and I told you to take a month off and brought you back and gave you the same test, would you pass at that time? No. Well, why not? Because I didn't do anything in between. Well, what do you think absolute rest is going to do for your current situation? And, well, for sure know, be stealing that analogy, just so you know. I'll go for it. <laughs> that yeah. is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. But, but it is being able to like frame a lot of that. And I think like it kind of breeds itself just because, especially in the age group I treat, you're in the education environment. So everyone's like, oh yeah, that makes total sense along the way. And you know, a couple of days ago, I was talking to a buddy who is just going through a pretty frustrating injury right now and strong dude, like 800 pound squatter and has some high hamstring tendinopathy. And like, I, I will never give, or I would do my best to never give unsolicited advice. And him and I, he had reached out to me with some questions and he was just talking through his frustrations and he trains at the same time I do. So like him and I tend to be like screwing around on our phones in between sets a little bit more. So I talk to him more often. Uh, but he was like, man, I just don't know. Like, I don't get it. Like a lot of these people are coming back like way faster than me. And like this happened, I guess this conversation was last week. And uh, I was like, okay, man, like I get it. Like it sucks. It's awful. It's like, let me ask you this. Like stock markets went to hell right now. It's like, yeah. It's like, who do you think's more upset? The people with a thousand dollars in the bank are the people who started out with four hundred thousand dollars in the bank. It's like, well, the rich people. It's like, why? It's like because they lost a lot more. Okay, who do you think is more upset right now? The guy who's really strong, or the guy who has no gains whatsoever? He's like, oh, well, the really strong guy because I've lost a lot more. Okay, so do you think the really rich people, if you're trying to build that wealth back up, you're better off doing all these crazy uh, investment short sells? Or do you use the same principle as you turned it or that you use turn yourself into a strong motherfucker in the first place? And you know, it's, you got to be able to think about things like that or like through those lenses. And a lot of times I think 
our initial inclination whenever we have a setback, especially, I think it gets back to this like generalist versus specialist approach. Like if you have one trick and you lose your trick because of an injury, like what else are you going to do? That's where you like gain all of your satisfaction from. And specific to like the powerlifting community, like if you can't squat, you forget that there's literally hundreds of thousands of other exercises that you can go be doing. Yeah. And you know, sometimes it is like, let's just go do something different for a little while. Like there's nothing special about it. There isn't this one weird trick. It's like, well, you can tolerate this. Well, then we can tolerate this and this. And we start building back into it from there. I think the big thing, if we could give to like our, our students and new grads, like zoom out from time to time, like we're taught in school so much to like specify, specify, specify. And like our value is in our complexity or like our specificity of whatever the task or trick may be. Sometimes it's really just being able to take like five or six steps back and be like, this is, this is point A. Point B has a lot of variance in between. Pick a route. And then let's see kind of where that next step kind of goes. Um, uh, I think Jared Boyd kind of put in one of his posts a while ago, just talking about we value so much more complexity rather like rather than simplicity for whatever reason as human beings. I think we get caught up in that, um, whether that's in PT or training or cooking or whatever, you know, the walk of life is. Um, we want things to seem more sexy because it seems more complex. Yeah. yeah. I mean, last night we were watching a video on uh, my, my most recent endeavor is I want to learn how to make bread just because like it is just such a simple thing, but it's very technical. And I was watching a video on how to make sourdough and the guy was like, it's literally two ingredients, three if you count the wild yeast. And it is such a hard thing to do. And, and like, I, I think that kind of is the perfect uh, analogy to the whole like, well, what do we have evidence for? Well, exercise and education or movement and education. Okay. So what are you going to go do with those two things? Well, we're going to figure out what our process is and there's going to be a lot of steps. Sometimes stuff just needs to sit there and rest for a little while and we need to go focus on something else. And, you know, it was funny because like during the video, the, uh, the, videographers or the subjects were like, yeah, now this needs to go rest for two hours. And they, and like on the screen, it was timing their breaks in Mario Kart games. And it was like three blue shells later. And, and I think that really is kind of like a pretty good analogy for the whole rehab process. It's like, okay, we had this block where, where we were working on the thing that we needed to work on. Now you need to go do something else. It, it doesn't inherently need to be absolute rest. These guys are entertaining themselves, but like we need to go focus on something else for a little while and come back to it. And then we'll do our process again. Then we'll go play another couple games or like we'll go do some other exercise. That's not a squat, a bench or a deadlift. And then we'll come back to it. And it's been, you know, if you sit there, like if that same person sit there and like stared at the bread the whole time, there's no way they're not poking it. Which, by the way, I'd still keeping the bread analogy. Sarah just started a uh, a sourdough starter last week, and knowing that you have to feed it every day, when you think about some of these like bread starters that are like 150 years old or older than that, and they've had to feed it or like nurture it every day for 150 years, mind blowing. Uh, and it's still, like you said, a very simple process. It's water and it's flour. 
and you. But you know what, though? Somebody committed to that process. And kept pushing the rock up the hill. Yeah. Go. Physical therapy is sourdough. Yeah. It's a, I'll, go, I'll go screw up a sourdough recipe for you later today. That way we can uh, talk about it. But even then, like from my first, like I did my first run at making bread last weekend and to call it a failure is probably to denigrate the word failure because it was so bad. <laughs> and like, you know, you learn some of it. And then I made some this week that like, it's still like the funny part is it's still better than like 90% of the stuff you buy in the store but it still kind of sucked. <laughs> like, and so, but you know, you learn from it and hopefully, you know, hundred iterations later, I'll start having it down to where there's not as many screw ups. There you go. I guess when you're Derek, when you're talking to other students too, or even other clinicians, how do you help them kind of change their metric? I think sometimes, like you said, like that second or third iteration of the bread still sucks to you, but maybe like to the other perspective, people that have not worked with bread very often still probably was, pretty up there in like in scale or value to them. Like how do you help reestablish somebody else's metric to kind of maybe be a either more realistic perspective or at least a perspective that's more useful to them? Oh man. I, I think even with behavior change, it's, that's a hard thing. Like if you look at all the evidence for it, like there, we don't have this like set algorithm on ways to really change behavior and, and each time it's going to be different. Um, one of our newer grad clinicians that works with me, um, there's kind of a running joke because she says, I never give a direct answer. And like a lot of times that's very intentional because like, if I say yes, no, you've stopped thinking about the problem. But a lot of my job is to keep you thinking about it because you know, Dan Airely, who's a behavioral economist, tells this example that like I've never done with anybody, but like I would really be interested to see like how it would work as a trick. He says when he gets up to start teaching a class, he'll like start out with like, how many of you are in a long-term relationship and people will raise their hand. And then he's like, okay, I want you to make a list of the 10 things you love about this person. And most people can only get to like four or five. By the way, you did this to me while I was your student, and I remember Tim laughing his ass off as he heard yeah. this happen. Yeah, well, but because a lot of times, like, if, if you really think about it, like, you're going to over-invest in how much you think you know about something you really care about. And really, like, when it comes down to it, like, I've ran into so many, like, dead ends looking at research questions that I thought I knew the answer to that at this point it's just kind of laughable and you just kind of like shrug it off and you're like, well, we don't have a good answer to that. Like, you know, if you look at the heavy, slow resistance literature for tendinopathy, we have three randomized control trials on that. And this stuff is taught as like biblical at this point. Yeah. And so you just kind of start getting used to that process. But once again, it's, it's flipping that switch between like, I know what I'm talking about. I, I like, I, I'm confident in what I'm going to say and like, I'm never going to have all the answers. And it really is kind of facilitating that curiosity out of it. It's that always learning uh, switch. And, and if you can hit that switch, like it, it's more fun that way too. I would argue like, I mean, if, can you imagine like in 
to the lifting scenario. Like you get a 500 pound deadlift and you're like, I'm good. I know all there is to know about weightlifting now. And then you like go tell everybody like, dude, I pulled 500. Like I, I, I have arrived as a lifter. In a lot of gyms, you're probably going to be the baddest dude around. But then like you show up and Steffi Cohen blasts you with her warm up, and you're like, oh, maybe I should have kept going a little bit. And, and it is that kind of perspective of like what you know out of it. Like I was talking with Austin when he was talking about getting close to a PR on deadlift and we were discussing the mentality out of it. And he was like, yeah, you know, when I pull, I'm going to be like really happy. And my question was, how long do you think you're going to be really happy for? And he was like, probably about as long as it takes me to walk away from the platform. Like, you know, if you pull 672, well, 674 is right around the corner. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think anyone ever in a like training history has been like, you know what? I'm strong enough. I, I've, I am, I have reached the pinnacle of the mountain. Like you go out, you celebrate your PRs, but then you're like, all right, go back to work on Monday. And I think like even looking at the PT realm, it's the same thing. It's like, man, I really explained that well. And but then it's still the, like, how could I have done it better? And the whole, like, Andy Duke talks a lot about resulting. And we tend to look at a lot of our conversations or our decisions on the result that came out of it, not how high of a quality the decision was in the first place. And, you know, if we look at patient care, you basically have four scenarios. You can do the right thing and get the right outcome, do the right thing, get the wrong outcome, do the wrong thing, get the right outcome and do the wrong thing, get the wrong outcome. And like the wrong and wrong, that's like our, we we're, we're well aware of those. Like we talk about those. That's where we go back to the well, like what could I have done better? The right, right. We like pat ourselves on the back, but the most dangerous one out of all of that is the wrong decision, right outcome. And if we're not reflecting on those, then like, are we really providing the best care? But those are also the ones that are the most dangerous to us, like as a clinician, because it starts instilling this false sense of confidence that this wrong decision was in fact the right one. Then I can start selling Con Ed courses on that. Yeah. <laughs> It'd make a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the model of correctness instead of like a, a dichotomy, rather more like an asymptote. Like we're like always striving to be as close to like, you know, um, the highest pinnacle, but at the same time, like it's a never reaching, you know, endless pursuit. Well, and kind of going back to some of the behavior change questions, like when I'm with students, like one of my favorite questions to ask is how certain are you of this? And like, if, if someone's a hundred percent certain, like, uh, most of the time that that's problematic. And we tend to think of it as this like binary zero one, but like if you ask me how much heavy, slow resistance training helps with tendinopathy, I'd give you like 78%. And, and I think like being able to kind of titrate that down, it, it also shows you that uh, like there is like always room to learn things. I think that's that's one of the biggest things, you know, talking with you guys and learning from you guys over the, the past two years. It's just being uncomfortable with uncertainty and just being able to – I remember – I'll never forget you said this too on the first time we talked is 
the job of the job of the clinician on the first uh, initial eval is just to get the person to like you, right? You're just establishing a friendship with this person so they can know, love, and trust you. As long as I don't put that person in a bottle with uh, intentionally with with language education, then we're off to a good start. Um, I know that's like whenever you dive into literature on my end, it's yeah, you feel like oh, there's there's always so much to learn right now. I definitely don't know anything. But is it fair to say that there's also that trajectory where everything kind of boils back down to the basics and some simplicity over complexity? Is that fair to say from, for generally speaking, if we're talking about rehab and, and people regressing to their mean? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is you could almost make the algorithm like, have you addressed the basics? Yes, no. If no, go address the basics. Are you good at the basics? Yes, no. If no, go get good at the basics. Are you phenomenal at them? And, and it just keeps going up from there. But the problem is, you know, there's, there's not much shiny about that. The, the basics don't make phenomenal Instagram posts. And if you're sitting over there, like grinding the whole time and doing the things you need to be doing, odds are you're too focused on getting good at the basics to really be out shining the bat signal of the importance of what you're doing. Yeah. Also, uh, another um, metaphor or something that pops in my head as we're talking about pushing that rock up the hill is Nipsey Hustle and the marathon. Marathon and continues. The marathon, the marathon continues, man. Say, there's always yeah. so many analogies and metaphors that come out of this podcast, man. I feel like it's all we do. Well, but you know, going back to where we were a little bit ago, like it is the more of those you can draw from, the easier it is to connect with somebody. For like, sure. You know, if if you've lived your whole life in this like narrow ravine of perspective, and it's hard to talk to somebody who is five miles away in another valley, and it's like how how do we connect through that entire map? And you got to go walk somewhere where you've never been before in order to go there. I think what uh, W. Kamu Bell has like a, a comedy special on, on Netflix that talks about that too. Cause like his big show on CNN for, for years was like him going around to different cultures and just like having a meal with them and just talking about life in that area. And just like, and you just kind of show the overarching theme, like there's a lot more that connects people than actually divides them. Um, but you know, their differences in perspective can be, you know, so drastically, you know, on different ends of the spectrum. But it's important, like, just to reach outside your comfort zone a little bit, just ask some questions. Yeah, I think it's interesting just from, like, the serendipity of life. I've lived in West Virginia, South Carolina, Florida, and now California. You know, Florida man is its own internet meme. California yeah. certainly gets stereotyped. And West Virginia, I would say, if any state gets drugged through the mud for its own reputation, it's West by God. And, like... It's, I, I certainly think that shaped my personality, but you know, when I have conversations with people out here and they say something about West Virginia, I'm like, have you ever been, have you ever been to the state? Have you ever talked to somebody from the state? So you've met me now. I'm your N of one out of it. And if you think it's just a bunch of dumb rednecks, I'm sorry, you're entirely wrong. You need to take your ass there and go experience it yourself. But instead, you're too busy going to all these tourist locations. That way you can be just like everybody else taking your Snapchat from the Grand Canyon. 
Like we have a new river gorge in West Virginia, just as nice. But you didn't know that because you were too busy focused on the fact you think everybody from West Virginia is dumb redneck. Now go to West Virginia. You live in California. Oh man, you're out there with all the tree huggers. Dude, have you ever been to California? I know you haven't. You ain't been three states outside of Putnam County. Like half of California is farmland. They're the same people that you are. All you know of California is these small little pocket areas. Go drive around, get outside your comfort zone. You know, Florida is its own thing. Florida man actually probably is relatively accurate. Yeah. So, that's, that's probably fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're going to leave that alone. Like, yeah. But being able to like, in, in <laughs> it's funny because, you know, in a lot of the country Western side of the music, they'll talk about like flyover states. And, you know, these days it is so easy to get somewhere else that you miss a lot of the process in between. Like, you know, I've driven cross country three times now, like in every time you're like, man, Kansas is flat, but I've now done it. I've seen it. Whereas like if the whole time you're flying from SF to Washington, DC, you never saw Kansas. You might've looked out the window, but you have no perspective on what goes on there. I get that a lot whenever I tell some of my patients that I worked in Oregon, the first thing they assume is Portland. I'm like, nah, I was in rural Oregon in the middle of nowhere. Um, and yeah, it does help shape your perspective, but it also helps your exposure just to a whole different mindset of people. Like the mindset on the West Coast is very different from Texas. I can say that with relative certainty, probably about 65 to 70% certainty if like Derek had to peg me for a number. But at the same time though, it has helped widen my ability to reach a different set of people. Like I have several members of my patient population that are ranch hands. I have several people that are also in the tech industry. I can, I have a lot better chance of connecting to both of them now, now that I've seen, you know, variety in both of those areas. That's such a, and it's such an awesome tool to be able to talk about the same conditions, the same, um, you know, uh, programming, um, options with all these different shades of people. That's, I think that's another one of the, the big takeaways from like a year out of practice is, yeah, you can like, we know generally how to educate on a certain topic, but being able to explain it to, you know, we talk about now in our, as we're promoting this business is like, all right, can you take a topic and explain it to somebody at the high school level, graduate school level, undergrad level? And can you explain it to the ranch hand, the tech bro, the housewife, you know, um, the vice president might take a little bit more work for the vice president, but, uh, but yeah, but yeah, can you be able to do that? Can you explain a topic as thorough and, and related to all those people's needs? Um, but yeah, yeah. Shit. I'm hyped now, man. I want to go, I want to go treat some people via telehealth right now. <laughs> no, I'd rather go listen to some hip hop instead. All right. <laughs> Hey, who would, who out of all the, the artists right now, who would you want to work with most as a physical therapist? Like, Hey man, there's a, there's a rapper right now. It's like, yo, I need to tell Al, I'm going to hit Josh up. Who do you, who do you want to be on the other, on the other side of zoom right now? Mm. This is a question for everybody. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, it's a little oozy very for me. <laughs> yeah. Like without question. Uh, I think more in like the more popular space, it'd probably be either J. Cole or somebody from Dreamville, I think currently for me. 
um, more kind of in the underground space. I think right now, in between, like, I've listened to a lot of Sam Hinshaw and um, Jack Harlow recently too. So those would be interesting dudes. I'd be like, yeah, let's uh, let's see what you know, see how we can help that out. Jack right Harlow. What's that? I gotta go check out Jack Harlow. I'll send you some stuff later. Yeah. Okay. Derek. Right now, I'm I'm really struggling with this right now, just because I still haven't really found a, a new school rapper that I'm really down with. My what? initial thought, my initial thought to your question, no, nah, I mean I, I get down with some of the stuff you guys send me, but like my initial thought to this question is like. I wish I could go back and work with Big Pun and just do some like cardiovascular rehab, yes. keep that dude around a little bit longer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, that was my first thought, and I think it got like ingrained in me, and I can't get off of it now because I'm like, man, if we could have kept Pun around for another few albums. Yeah. Just imagine. I like, I like how most people is like, hey, if I, if only I had a time machine, I'd go back, I'd kill Hitler for Derek. It's I'd go back and I'd go go do some cardiovascular work with Big Pun. That's yeah. Awesome. Keep him around a little bit. Yeah. Got got to keep that flow going. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know out of the new stuff you guys have been sending me and I've been thinking about this as we kind of been going back and forth, uh, talking about the podcast and the music side of things. And I was looking for the quote because there's something that is to the effect of like, if you learned it in your teens, it's natural to you. If you learned it in your twenties, like it's something you can adapt. And if you like, if it comes across in your thirties, you're like, I don't want to, I don't care. And I've kind of found myself like, reflecting on my musical taste and our discussions being like, damn, I'm in my upper thirties now. Like I've become that guy Yeah, because man. like some of the stuff you guys have sent recently has been good. It's just like, I don't look for it as much. So I think what I'm exposed to is a lot of like little Yachty and that like trash that gets played on the radio. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, I can imagine like, how hyped Jared was whenever Lil Yachty put out um, Oprah's bank account and that whole video came through. I, like, I, I really I really had to hold back on sending you guys that. I, I was wondering if that was going to come through. It was, I, it was a I, draft. I was waiting for it. Well, who, who was the guy you guys sent us uh, either yesterday or Thursday? Mick something? Mick Jenkins, yeah. Dude, that guy was good. Like I, we, we were rocking that all day. Hell yeah. Like, Mick was, Jenkins goes hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did enjoy that. So, you know, it's certainly still out there, but it is really the same thing as like you got to look for it a little bit more. Yeah, you and dig. I feel like now, like, I go digging much more in the like uh, R&B and kind of alt rock genres a little bit more. And it's just kind of where it shifted along the way. So, Who's, who I are mean, you listening to in the R&B, in the R&B world? Uh, oh, War and Treaty has been the one that I got into recently. Like they're they're awesome. Uh, I've been wearing out their most recent album, uh, and then like I, I'm a huge fan of Rainbow Kid and Surprise, partially because they have the greatest band name of all time. Yeah, and then they also are just like, like across the board spectacular musicians. Like if you ever go get to see them live, that was one of those concerts that like I knew they were good, and when I saw them perform, you're just sitting there like these guys are there wasn't there isn't one member of the band that's not just a mind-blowingly good musician so and and the songs some of the songs are kind of hilarious too so but that's been the big thing and then i've been on uh a big uh like 
alt country genre again, which I know is probably your guys' favorite. Actually, yeah. all the Texas guys, you probably get down with a lot of that. So yeah, man. Trace, do you get down with some country? Yeah, that's mostly what I listen to. So the rapper conversation, I'm not gonna. I will offer mainstream people, and that's pretty much it. I don't. I don't like, go down that rabbit hole. I enjoy it like, like when I'm lifting, but Tyler Childers. Yeah. Jason Isbell. I haven't heard of him. Oh man, gotta check him out. He used to be the lead singer for the Drive By Truckers. All, all good stuff. Jason so. Isbell. I'm gonna put him in YouTube. That's funny that I actually there. know who Jason Isbell and the rest of these guys don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, th- there's definitely some good stuff out there, but once again, it's kind of that like you got to at least go to the second tier in order to find it. Yeah. One of the things that I've appreciated just with like more access and. And like the music world is like you highlight a lot of the independent people and this seems to be a golden era for producers and mixers they don't get a lot of hype they're getting more hype now because like especially in hip-hop you hear their signature like as you know at the start of the song and you like know what to look for you know like boy wanda and like bigger name people like that but for me i just i've learned i'm learning to appreciate more of that creative process more some of them do silo themselves into the same types of sounds or the same types of drums and things like that. But I'm noticing more patterns as I'm listening to more stuff. So if we said, like, let's play a game. If you guys got your phone around you, let's go. What's the three last stations you listen to on Spotify? Oh shit. Mm -hmm. I can answer that pretty easy. Time to get exposed. (laughs) So I have an instrumental funk uh, on Spotify radio. It's been a go-to recently. Um, I had Luke Combs playing last night and just like that radio station. So I've been, I've been on the Luke Combs kick since I've been going to Billy Bob's a lot recently. Uh, nice. Get some Whataburger on the way home. Goddamn right you do. Um, <laughs> and then I think it was Sam Hinshaw was the last, uh, last hip hop thing I did recently. It was either Sam Hinshaw or shoot. Stand by. Hold on. Real time updates here. Who you got for us, Jared? All right, my uh, recently I've I've been listening to Jesus Peace. That yeah. was the Games album in from 2012. Some Erica Badu, nice. The Lo-Fi Beats on Spotify, which is an amazing playlist. If you Strong guys, playlist, awesome Strong. playlist on Spotify. Um, and yeah, my girlfriend and I bump a lot of 90s, so like TLC has been in the mix uh recently um as far as new stuff lil wayne's funeral album i've been bumping that um which is is it's a little wayne album so that's really yeah. all we can say about that it's lil wayne being lil wayne um excited about dreamville you know um to jump off of, of josh's point my my uh my most listened to artists of last year I believe, however, might have been Kevin Gates because I represent hard for Louisiana artists. Kevin Gates is a funny dude. He is. He's, funny, he's funny controversial, dude. man. He's very controversial. <laughs> I think my most recent, uh, my most listened to in last year was actually John Bellion. Um, John and his music collective, um, Beautiful Mind, they've written for a lot of top 40 people. Yeah. And they've yeah. also highlighted a lot of New York soul. Um, so he does like pop stuff to like 
16 bar, like hardcore rap to everything in between. Dude's talented, stupid, stupid talented. Who you got for us, Trace? So mine have been, one was a Run This Town mix that was a higher, like a higher intensity one. Um, I got Ain't Nothing That a Beer Can't Fix. <laughs> like the name of that playlist. Yep. Um, and then the other one was Childish Gambino, which is typically what I lift to. Nice. Has everybody listened to the new Gambino project yet? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I gave it one run through. I did too. It's good, easy, just background music, like when I'm cooking and stuff like that. Um, but I'm glad that he's still doing music as a fan. And then I always have somewhere on my Spotify, Lil Dicky, whenever I feel like I need to listen to Pillow Talk. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a show now too, right, Dave? On Hulu? He does have a show on FX. I think that's what Jared was about to say, right? Yeah, it's pulling up on Hulu too. We're caught, I think I'm one episode behind on it. It is interesting. Wow. That's all I got. <laughs> so, Derek, what, what have you been rotating through besides the other two? And, like, what are your criteria? if there would be like somebody modern in hip hop to actually kind of meet your standard, what do you expect? Um, well, the first thing I'm expecting is for not to be the same damn words for the entire song. Like it actually has to like tell a story or have some lyrics to it and not just repeating the exact same thing over and over and over and over and over again. What if it's just like um, a powerful so mantra like, though? Wouldn't what, that help? Like lemon pepper wings with the whatever on. Like, yeah. What it's, if that's, I mean, that's really a powerful mantra. Wasn't that like future or something like that? Like, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of this stuff doesn't really give me, give me your powerful mantra. Give me an example. Ah, uh, it's a good, that's a good point. Um, uh, shit. Gotta, you gotta give me some time. If, if you're asking me to freestyle right now for a powerful yeah. mantra, um, I'm trying so, what I've heard, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to steal your thunder there, but people like Future and some of these new people, they'll find they'll find a beat, and then they'll just freestyle um, like syllables over it. So like, and somehow that turns into like lemon pepper wing stop. I said that makes no sense whatsoever. Like, do <laughs> you think like I, I was just waiting when I asked you for a powerful mantra or a powerful mantra? That's my West Virginia coming out powerful <laughs> mantra for you to to come out and just be like panda 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 panda. It's it's, which is about the extent of the uh, lyrical skills that go down right now, but like uh, the I still can't remember the dude's last name Mick whatever Jenkins, it was awesome yeah, yeah. like uh, Earth Gang I, I did enjoy that like yeah. a lot of stuff you guys have been on a roll recently actually normally like I, I don't know if you guys are trolling me or being genuine but like <laughs> the last four or five you've sent have actually been pretty good yeah so, man. So it had been a while since we'd actually sent a few that we've kind of updated recently. Yeah. Yeah. It, it goes through waves. I feel like, uh, one of us will hit something that the, uh, we feel the other two should go listen to. And then it, it kind of like cues off five or six going back and forth. So why, why do we think this trash music is so popular? Like, is it, is it the beat? Is it the, is it the, Hey, I, I just need something to get me hype. And feels good. I, I can't digest this heavy lyrical content right now. COVID's going on. I'm laid off. Like, I just need something to get me through this shit. I need some Lil Yachty. 
I need some lemon pepper wing stop. Well, I mean, so they've actually like looked at some of this and it's kind of interesting because uh, they were looking at some, like how the evolution of the bars went down and, and just the pattern of everything and the, tri- the emergence of the triplet beat. And they, there's been some stuff talking about how the triplet beat is so predictable that it kind of just like drops you into a rhythm. And if you look at a lot of things, like it's funny because now we're going to have the expectations conversation. Like if you, we've all heard that song for the first time and like the chorus hits and like you find yourself kind of nodding along and then you Mm -hmm. know the word and you say it and like it kind of gets you there. That's, that's the hook out of it. Panda, 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 panda. Exactly. Like you're not going to go wrong trying to figure out what the lyrics of that song are. Uh, But you know, it's the same thing with the beat. And like, if you look at like uh, EDM and that type stuff, like what's the whole thing? It's like, how much can I raise your expectation for when I'm going to drop the beat? And it is that like, when I hate that music, it sounds like a washer and dryer having sex. <laughs> um, that's some people's thing, man. Hey man, you do you. That's the, listen, like if, if that's your thing, <laughs> go do it. Just please don't play it in my gym. Um, but like there is that whole expectation out of it. And if you look at music in general, like, a lot of the pop stuff is very simplistic in its structure and it's designed that way because it gets you kind of nodding your head along and like, there is no like uh, derivative of expectation out of it. Yeah. It's perfect that you brought that up. Uh, Derek, I'm going to appease to the, uh, to the, I guess more eight, the wizened music ear. Do you remember the story of how Outkast got played on the radio the first time or like how they kind of got mainstream promise? You ever hear this? No. Okay. So one of of the execs um, for one of the Atlanta radio stations had heard about Outkast pulling a lot in the underground scene. So I'll backpedal this a little bit more and kind of shorten the short as best I can. Um, So in Atlanta, the way that you know that you're hot is if you play in the strip clubs or on the radio. It's pretty much how every producer understands it. So um, on the street at that time, this was like early 90s. Big Boy and Andre 3000 had like bigger followings, especially in Atlanta. And so they had just recently signed to a record label and they're trying to get radio time. This was for, I want it, I think it was actually for, um, this may be for Hey Ya, it may have been for um, The Love Below. Anyways, so they're, the record, uh, the A&R, the record label were trying to find ways, like radios that would play it and like nobody wanted to play it. It was just, it was so different from what was being played on the radio at that time. So they had been going back and forth for six months to a year at a time. And then all of a sudden, um, one radio station decides to take a chance on it and they put it in the night rotation, but they segmented it in between like a pop song and a country song, stuff that was like sonically very different, but at least kind of somewhat had a similar chord progression and a similar sound progression. And they just stuck it in there and they did it purposefully to kind of get people to kind of stop and pause and think like this feels different like the expectation of like where this song was going felt different. And so they ran with it and like they played it and they would see how many people would change the station when the, when the song was inserted. So like the first month or so, like the song was being changed really, really quickly. But after about three months, they noticed that like that stark change of pace actually kept people more interested. And then it actually got more radio time. So then Atlanta started to play it, LA picked it up, New York picked it up. And then by that point it was full saturation. Now we have Outcast. So it's funny because uh, like the first time I 
actually remember hearing Outcast. It was uh, Bombs Over Baghdad, the remix where it was overlaid over Rage Against the Machine. And like, I was like, man, I don't know what this is, but I need more of this in my life. Wow. And part of the reason I started like really getting into it is because like I had came up with Rage listening to that in the gyms in the 90s. And then I was like, damn, these guys are awesome. And it's a very familiar beat. And then like went into their album was like, actually, these guys are just amazing by themselves all around. So it, it, that's, that's an interesting story out of it just because I, I mean, I, I was at Clemson when they came up. Um, I mean, when all that came out, I think was like my freshman, sophomore year of college when they kind of popped off. So. And I may not have gotten all the details right. This is kind of a rough summary, but the gist of it was like the way that they had to actually use like expectations in song. And like that, that was the algorithm for radio time. And it still kind of is. And when you see like huge superstars, like the baby is a perfect example right now. So like, he's what we would consider full saturation at this point. Because, <laughs> so much like, saturation. <laughs> so much that because he's everywhere. But like a few, like. He ain't on my radio. Huh? <laughs> But I mean, for, for a good portion of the population, like radio and also that means like, like TV background songs and things like that, things you hear in the mall, like it kind of follows the progression of somebody picks it up, it gets put into the rotation. If the rotation kind of keeps the trend going, essentially, it then gets kind of passed the next step would be like, then TV is put in a commercial or something like that. And then it's expanded to like more radio markets it's seen everywhere else. It's being picked up and like promoted by Spotify and a lot of the bigger uh, media networks. And like, it just keeps getting pushed more and more and more. So that's how full saturation happens. It's went viral, if you will. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> yeah. So. There's that clip of, uh, of Outkast getting booed at the Soul Train Awards too. Have you seen that? I've heard about that, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. But yeah, that's, and, oh no, go ahead. So it's 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 crazy too, like how relatable this is to again the subjective conversation with setting expectations, preparing somebody to drop a new not a new beat, but maybe a piece of of uncomfortable information. How do you sprinkle in some pain science? How do I sprinkle in some outcasts? They're not my subjective exams. I try to get people ready for that beat drop. It's 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 a lot of your little little yachty. Oh God. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, there's this awesome uh, picture that was floating around because Tyler Childers is from my neck of the woods, uh, except he's on the Kentucky side of it. And I mean, dude's like a Grammy award winning artist now and has like a massive following. And he was playing at this burrito shop in Huntington, West Virginia. And somebody took a picture of him and it's him in the corner playing and ain't nobody paying attention to him. And like, this was like, you know, three or four years ago, not that long. And like, it's just one of those things of like, you know, where is your attention? What are you, what are you giving it to? These are the same songs he's singing now, but everybody's more focused on the burrito and the tacos at that time. Trace, this now, I got a story similar to that too. Go ahead and finish up, Derek. But no, now that, you know, that West Virginia's probably paying 60, 70 bucks a pop to go see him in a concert hall where they're going to be, you know, 200, 300 feet away versus they could have like reached out and given a high five in between songs yeah. while eating a burrito while eating a burrito. Yeah. best of both worlds <laughs> <laughs> so traces for you so luke combs obviously is huge in country right now 
Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's literally everywhere. So he had auditioned for The Voice in 2015, 2016. So went through all of the singing auditions, went through pre-production. Everybody loved him. But The Voice producers didn't bring him onto the show to audition because his story was too boring, air quotes. So that was in 2016 for that season, whenever that was. And so now he has like seven um, certified gold, three platinum records. He's like been number one in country for God knows how long, but mm. just because it wasn't gonna sell a story, that's why we didn't make it on a TV, which people think is like the biggest find, like on shows like The Voice or you know, America's Got Talent and things like that. I don't know what the, the ones that win it, like you usually also, is selling more albums, going a little further. It's, I mean, yeah, there are a couple that are huge names, but I feel like their success rate can't be super high. Either. high. Yeah. Like, uh-uh. uh, I'm with you there. I think what Kelly Clarkson may be the most famous winner. And then and Carrie yes. Underwood, Carrie, Carrie Underwood won something. Yeah. Was Carrie first or second. Carrie won that year. Okay. Hey. Yeah. So Jennifer Hudson, yeah. right? was a winner. No, or didn't, yeah, didn't win. Mm-mm. Because I think what? Julianne Huff was on one of them too, but I don't think she won. She didn't. So, so. I think she was on it after she had already had her like one hit wonder song, mm-hmm. which is kind of an odd paradigm in general. So, sure. Yeah, well, for those, do we have some other things we need to, or we want to cover, or where are we at? Yeah, I think, man, I think we covered a lot. Uh, I had a silly question maybe to wrap up, but. Any 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 other topics or any other questions you guys want to get out? I've aired my grievances. Yeah, <laughs> I'll save my like little Uzi Vert uh, defense for another time. I was gonna gonna end with um, for I don't think we asked this on the on the previous podcast, but your philosophy of physical therapy, your treatment style, just that 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 person that you are when you step in, into the clinic. Who has that been most in, uh, influenced by? Hey, man. I, not in the PT sense, but in the, the artistry sense, in the music sense. Like, are you bringing, like, big pun vibes in the clinic? Like, when you're talking to people, when you, you put inflections on certain words, when you educate people, like, who are you, what, what type of energy are you bringing in? Some West Coast gangster rap vibes, some lo-fi beat vibes, some country mm-hmm. vibes? I, I honestly think, like, I, I don't know, that, like, I'd have to really sit here and think about an artist. Um, it'd be somebody in the country realm. I think mine would have like, to be mine would have to be Garth. I think I'm walking. What's funny is I actually thought Garth confidence. Too. Like, yeah, uh, that's funny because Garth was my first like association out of it, mm-hmm. and it's not even the confidence out of it. But like, if you look at all the genres of music, the two places where you're going to get the best stories are country and R and B. Now, the stuff that comes out of an R and B song probably isn't clinic appropriate, whereas the stuff in country music, like. I mean, what's the joke you hear about country? It's like you play a country song backwards, you get your dog back, your wife back, your truck back, your house back. <laughs> and like, I mean, it's kind of what a lot of PT is. So if you're going to talk about like the genre that's going to come out of it. And I think, uh, I think Garth probably is probably one of the best ones if you're going to talk about like the personality with that. That's a great so, point. I like how you yeah, said too, just having that that conf, that ultra ego confidence come, stepping into the clinic and talking. And yeah, now we need Garth Brooks, not Chris Gaines, though. <laughs> Good point. Good distinction. Uh, uh, I was yeah, to like, 
it, I, you know, what's funny about it though, is I might go somebody that would be like, if I had to say like, who really like I would go off of, it would probably be like Randy Rogers band or like one of the more like Texas country guys, just because like, I think lyrically they tell a better story and you're still getting some of that personality out of it. But like, it's, you know, country music gets us knocked because it's everyone jokes. It's just G D and E for chords, but man, that, that means you're really relying on like, you know, it's the sourdough, like you're relying on the story and the process. It all comes back to the story and process, man. Simple three ingredients. Yeah, I think if I'm going to pick somebody, I'm going to stick in the hip-hop realm. And he's been one of my favorite artists, but I, I like that he has more of a quieter confidence, but he's very assured in what his word choice and his wordplay is. It's Andy Mineo. Um, Andy is more known in, like, the Christian hip-hop realm, which has its own as a writer. He writes, he produces, he does the entire process, and he's very, very intentional about every step of it. And I tried to kind of match that intentionality in the clinic. Like I want my first, you know, interaction with the person to be like, you know, where they're sitting. Like they may sit a little bit higher than me and I, I'm listening, you know, during this objective. But when it's my turn to kind of step into the role of like, this is kind of the direction the clinic's going to go. I step up and, you know, I know where my voice is coming from. That's powerful, man. That's a, that's a Tim and, uh, and a Derek move. I, there are, I will say there are a lot of things that were influenced from that. And some, I'm sure we're all influenced by a lot of our CIs and the things that we've been exposed to. But uh, it's funny that she kind of equated back to like some music references too. For sure, for sure. All right, guys, it's been awesome chatting with y'all. I'm gonna let y'all have an, have an awesome uh, Saturday. For me, of course, my answer was uh, a little dicky. That's who I try to embody in there. But, but uh, this is why people is can't have nice things. <laughs> is this Dave or actual little Dicky? Uh, it's more more like full. I go. I try to go full Dicky in the clinic. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, might, yeah. What was that? <laughs> that's probably why you're on telehealth right now, primarily. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they told me not to come in. I don't get it. <laughs> anyway, anyway, guys, y'all have a great uh, evening. It, Y'all stay safe, stay strong. Um, keep killing it out there during this global pandemic. Yeah, man. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to go listen thanks to some big fun. All right. Trey, send some country stuff, bro. Help, help culture us a little bit. I can do that. I'll find some good stuff to send you your way. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Right, Later.